You're listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Like so many of you, I grew up watching classic movies. Old stars like Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, and Humphrey Bogart. Those were my favorite actors as a kid. Many of them still are. As time and technology developed, many of those black and white classics have been revisited and colorized. And while some people prefer that, nine times out of ten, the black and white version is still better. Why? Because that's the way God intended it to be. It came into this world in black and white. In my personal opinion, it should leave this world in black and white. But regardless, colorized movies do have their advantages. There is an upside to them because they have a way of bringing out the brighter details that are often missed with shades of gray. You might notice a character's tie or a subtle facial expression or that clue to the mystery that happens to be hanging in the background the entire time. Some of those things just pop. They come to life once they've been colorized. Color has a way of sharpening the picture and drawing out the details. In a way, that's what Paul does here at the end of Philippians 2. He arranges for Timothy and Epaphroditus to travel back to Philippi, but not without peppering his plans with details that colorize the themes of the chapter. And that theme is that we are all to be selfless servants. We are all to be marked by an attitude, by a mindset of humility. Last week we looked at Timothy, today Epaphroditus. So please follow along as we finish out the chapter, starting with verse 25. He says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In Princeton, New Jersey, you'll find the gravesite of William H. Hahn Jr. Very little is known about the man except that he was born in 1905 and he died in 1980. What we do know is that William ordered his own tombstone before he passed because it simply says, I told you I was sick. True story. Now, I don't know if Epaphroditus had a sense of humor or not, but he was certainly sick enough to put an order in for a tombstone like that if he wanted to. Verse 27 tells us, indeed, he was ill, near to death. This was a man who almost died while serving Paul in the church. He exemplifies the selfless qualities that we have looked at here in Philippians chapter 2. We know that verses 3 and 4 contain the big idea, the primary theme, the, the big picture for this chapter. There Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul then goes on to provide related commands and and illustrations of humility. He says to work it out, to be obedient, don't complain, and be different from everyone else. And he showcases all this humility with four living examples. He holds these pictures up for us to look at and for us to emulate our lives and pattern ourselves after. And he starts with Jesus. He he works his way down until he arrives at Epaphroditus. 
Verses 5 through 11 show us the greatest example of humility. There will never be an example of humility as great as that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, in the morphe of God, became a slave and humbled himself to the greatest degree, death on a cross. But because he did so, God exalted him and he gave him the best honor, the highest name, the greatest title, Lord, because God rejects the proud and he gives grace to the humble. He lowers the mighty and he lifts the lowly. Jesus is the ultimate example of Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. He is the ultimate example of humility, of considering the needs of others first. The second illustration is Paul. In verses 17 and 18, he describes his ministry as a drink offering, a drink offering that is being poured out upon the sacrifice of their faith. And Paul isn't looking for a fill-up. He's looking to be poured out. He's not looking to be served, but to serve. He says, I'm not important. Really, it doesn't matter. I'm I'm an apostle, yes. I have the A. I, I have that card in my back pocket. Not many people could say that. Not many people could say that they were a living, breathing, writing, and scripturating apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul could say that. But it doesn't go to his head. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle, now serve me. He says, look, I'm an apostle, but I'm just a drink offering. I am just here to pour myself out onto your sacrifice, your faith. And I'll gladly do that. I'll empty myself out for your sake. He says he's happy to do it. And he says that you should be happy with him. You should be glad with him. And then we saw Timothy in verses 19 through 24. Timothy was a rare jewel for the Apostle Paul. He was like a son to him. He followed Paul, copied Paul, served Paul. He learned from Paul. It's no wonder that the Apostle relied so heavily upon Timothy for so much of his ministry. Because Timothy was a selfless servant. He was a a humble helper, a faithful follower. And that brings us to the end of the chapter with this man named Epaphroditus. Honestly, we don't know much about him. We don't know much about Epaphroditus other than what we read here in these verses. We know that he was a Greek. We also know that he was likely raised in a pagan home. His name means loved by Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and passion. He was also a citizen of Philippi in Macedonia, where, remember, the church is only about 10 years old at the time that this letter was written. The gospel hasn't been there long enough for generations of parents to raise their kids in the shadow of the New Testament and its truth. So he was likely an unbeliever who grew up in an unbelieving home, who got saved as an adult sometime within the last 10 years. We have no indication that he was a pastor or someone of influence there within the local church. In fact, he probably wasn't because such a person would have their hands full ministering to the congregation there at home. Apparently, from all we can tell, Epaphroditus is just an ordinary guy. He's just an everyday layman in the church. He's a faithful layman in the church. Now, hopefully that makes your ears perk up because here's a guy that we can all relate to. Sometimes it's easy for us to forget that pastors are people too. I don't say that in a self-serving way. I say it because I've been in your seat longer than I've been behind this podium. And I know that that's that's, that's an easy mindset to fall into. Sometimes it's easy to forget that pastors are people too. We might be tempted to look at them differently or hold them up to a higher standard simply because they're God's man. And in a way, that's, that's good and healthy because Those who don't live by the book have no right to preach it. But if we aren't careful, we'll fall into this trap of creating one set of rules or standards for pastors and another set of standards for us. We'll say things in our heads like, well, you know, that command, that that encouragement, that's good, but that's for somebody in ministry. You know, Paul's writing that to Timothy or, or so-and-so is writing it to so-and-so within the New Testament. Or that's, that's for pastors. That's for people who are in ministry. That's not for me. I mean, I'm, I'm a bus driver or a businessman or whatever it is that you do. It, it becomes easy for us to tune out 
And, and for us to think to ourselves that, you know, maybe if I ever went into ministry, then that would apply to me. Then maybe I'd have a point of application. But right now, that's just not me, man. Well, church, I hate to break it to you, but if you are a Christian, you are in ministry. Every last one of us are. Uh, you might not be a pastor, but your ministry is just as real. And it will be tested one day when you stand before the Lord. He will blast all of your work with fire, and what's left will be yours for the rest of eternity. 1 Corinthians 3 makes that clear. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3.15 should motivate all of us to take our ministries seriously. Paul says there that if anyone's work is burned up, now again, he's talking about Christians. He's not talking about unbelievers. This isn't the great white throne of judgment. This is the Bama seat of Christ. He says if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. And you say, wait a minute, what do you mean he'll suffer loss? I'm in the kingdom. Well, he goes on, he says, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you get that? He's saying that you can make it into the kingdom and still suffer loss. You can barely squeak through the door and have nothing to show for it because most of what you did here on earth wasn't for Jesus. It didn't matter. So often we get caught up in so many things around us. We get caught up in our jobs. We get caught up in providing for ourselves and for our family and so many other different things. And those are all good pursuits. Those are primary things. You cannot afford to neglect them. Scripture is clear when it comes to that. But what about the eternal things? What about the ministry that God has given you? How faithful have you been to that? Because all of these other things will be burned up. All the other work won't be there. But your ministry will. And that is what you will carry with you into eternity. So we all have a ministry. There's plenty of work to go around. But what I love about guys like Epaphroditus is that they shatter the illusion that ministry is something special within the church. Ministry is not something that you pay the less than 1% of the church to do. It's a communal effort. It's an endeavor that we are all personally responsible for. And Paul honors this unknown background servant by commending the man here in Scripture. He holds him up as a picture of what every man can be and what every man should be. Up until now, you might have thought, well, that's Jesus. He's the perfect son of God. I'll never exactly be like Jesus. Or that's Paul the apostle. He's the greatest Christian who ever lived. I couldn't possibly be like Paul. Or even Timothy. He followed Paul for over a decade. And he has two New Testament books named after him. How could I possibly live up to that? He's still out of reach. Well, while none of those concerns hold water, aren't you glad that Paul still included Epaphroditus? Because here's a guy who is just like us, not special, just faithful. So I want us to look at five attributes of a faithful servant. What does Epaphroditus have that we all should have? What does humility look like on a grassroots level, boots on the ground, here in the church, amongst all of us? What does that humility look like? And how are others affected when someone lives out Philippians 2? What's the standard? Well, first of all, the best servants are crucial. Crucial. Look at the first thing Paul says. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. He uses much stronger language here than the words he wrote concerning Timothy. In verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon. And then again in verse 23, I hope therefore to send him. There's no hoping with Epaphroditus. And Paul simply says, it is necessary. I need to send this guy back. It's crucial because he's crucial. Epaphroditus, he means a lot to Paul. It means a lot to the Philippians and the spread of the gospel, so much so that his well-being has caused quite a stir. So Paul needs to send him home. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on with a series of Holy Spirit-inspired titles for his friend in the faith. He gives us five of them here in rapid-fire succession. And they're all 
crucial aspects of humility-soaked servanthood. Here's what the best servants have in common. First of all, they are all spiritual siblings. Spiritual siblings. He says, Epaphroditus, my brother. My brother. Sometimes I think we use this word so often in Christian circles, it loses its significance. When I first started seminary, honestly, if I'm going to be completely frank with you, I didn't like the word at all. I couldn't stand the word brother. Everywhere I turned, it was brother this and brother that. I felt like I had walked into a Hulk Hogan Thanksgiving family get-together or something. It's like, hey, brother, how's it going? Love you, brother. Make sure that you know, things go well for you, brother. Don't forget to parse those verbs, brother. Oh, it was annoying. When you're, when you're saturated with something for so long, it just doesn't seem to mean anything anymore, does it? It loses its punch. It loses its power. But Paul had a definite meaning in mind when he used this word to refer to other Christians. In a way, it's a confirmation. It's a stamp of approval that says, this guy's in the family. This guy is my family. You see, if he's my brother, that means that we have the same father. That means that we have the same name. It means that we are related not by choice, but by blood. That's what we're really saying when we call other believers brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, my relationship with God changes my relationship with you and vice versa. When God adopted you into his family, you gained more than a father. You gained a ton of siblings, a number of brothers and sisters in Christ. When you were born again, you were born into a family. Paul says, Epaphroditus, he's the real deal. He is a true brother in Christ. And there's only one way to become a true spiritual sibling. You must be born again. The Spirit of God must rip the blinders off of your eyes and pull the plugs out of your ears. He must breathe life into your dead corpse if there is to be a change in relationship between you and God and then by extension, God's people. So before I move forward, I at least have to ask the question, are you in the family? Do you know that you know that you are saved? Is there any doubt, any question in your mind? Because if there is, you cannot afford to take another breath without repenting of your sin, believing in the cross of Christ, and coming to saving faith. Now, some of you, I'm sure, especially if we have visitors here this morning, you might be wondering, what in the world is he talking about? Talk to me. Talk to me or anyone else around you about this truth. Just come up and say, what's the gospel? No one will think that's weird. If anything, people will get really excited and they will talk your ear off for the next three hours. So talk to somebody. Talk to someone. I would be more than happy to sit down anytime and share the gospel with you. How Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, God Himself, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died a criminal's death on a cross in the place of sinners, so that all who trust in him and believe in him for the salvation of their sins will be saved. I will be glad to tell you that story, and how he didn't stay dead, how he raised himself from the dead through the power of God, and how now he sits in heaven making intercession for us because he loves us so much, securing those who have been saved by his blood. I'd love to tell you that story. If you don't know it, talk to me, talk to anyone else here. We'll be more than happy to share the gospel with you. But notice, notice here that Paul says, my brother, my brother. He doesn't say a brother, but my brother. There's a sense of warmth and ownership here in the title. Epaphroditus is not some distant family member that he has to be nice to on the 4th of July. No, there's a depth of feeling and relationship that can only be found in the household of God. Now, this is is personal for him. And that's the way it should be for all of us and how we relate to one another because we are members of the same household. Second, they are spiritual sidekicks. Spiritual sidekicks. 
He says, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker. This is another common expression for Paul. He uses it often when referring to those who come alongside him and help him in the work of the ministry. He uses it when, when he refers to Timothy, Titus, and Luke, and a whole host of faithful men and women who, like Epaphroditus, we know very little about. Servants like Justus, Urbanus, and Aristarchus. Look over at chapter 4 here for a moment, where this word comes up again. Epaphroditus isn't the only faithful servant laboring well in the background. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 2. He writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my, here's the word, fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, Paul considers anyone, anyone a fellow worker, so long as they are real Christians and they're really involved. So we should all ask the question, what about me? Am I for real or not? Am I really involved or really devolved? Am I a church goer or a church grower? Where am I? How do I fit into this whole thing? Earlier this week, I was telling Stephen that part of me is looking forward to beginning chapter 3 because it feels like I've been beating people up so much here in chapter 2. But that's not me, folks. That's Paul. Uh, Chapter 3 begins with some really good, like, saving faith theology, warm fuzzies. I'm looking forward to that, and I'm sure some of you are looking forward to that as well. But obviously, our selfless service, it means something. It meant something to Paul. Otherwise, he wouldn't hit it so hard like he has here all throughout this letter. He wouldn't keep bringing it up and shining a spotlight on it to the Philippians. I will say, though, that it makes sense for Paul to list this title second right after Epaphroditus' salvation because we're saved to serve, aren't we? We're not saved to sit around, to soak and to sour We're saved to get up, to move, to share the gospel, to live the gospel. We're called to serve. As soon as we're pardoned, God puts us to work. That's number two. Number three, they are spiritual soldiers. Spiritual soldiers. This metaphor of being a soldier, it's one of Paul's favorites. It's one of my favorites too. In 2 Corinthians 10.4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare... How awesome is that? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. As destructive as firearms can be against the flesh, our weapons have divine power to change the heart and to cause spiritual damage. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6, just a page or two to the left. Ephesians 6. This is a very familiar portion of Scripture, mainly because of the military imagery that Paul uses to convey this reality of spiritual warfare. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to describe that armor of God. The point is that Christians are not spiritual pacifists. Christians are not allowed to stay at home and buy war bonds for others who are in the fight. If you are a Christian, your number has been called. There are no fellow spectators, only fellow soldiers. It was the Romans who revolutionized warfare by by taking scattered fighters and turning them into synchronized forces. Before the Romans legionized their warriors, armies would wear the same uniform, but, but they didn't come together. They didn't fight together as a unit. They fought as individuals. And so those that would come against them, they didn't stand a chance. They, they, didn't, they didn't hold a prayer. 
against a sea of fighters marching in unison, side by side, behind a wall of shields with their spears extended outward. The, the, attack, the attack against one was an attack against thousands. And each man was locked in and in sync with his fellow soldiers. That's the picture that Paul uses here to describe his Christian brother, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier. Let's look at one more reference because it's so good. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is so good. If you want to know what Paul is getting at with all of this wartime language, look at 2 Timothy 2. Verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Share in suffering. Again, you're probably not going to find this verse on a pillow at Hobby Lobby. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now get this. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You see, soldiers don't have the right to just do whatever they want. They can't just go out there and do their own thing after they've been enlisted. A good soldier does what they're told, and they take the fight seriously. There's a remarkable story from World War II that illustrates how people think differently during times of peace versus times of war. It was late October, 1944, when an officer commanding a platoon of American soldiers received a call from headquarters. Over the radio, the captain learned that his unit was being ordered to recapture a small French city from the Nazis. But that's not all. For weeks, the French resistance fighters had risked their lives to gather information about the German fortifications of that city. And they had smuggled out information to the Allies. Their efforts provided the Americans with something worth its weight in gold, a detailed map of the city. But it wasn't just any map. Uh, this map didn't just contain street names and restaurants or where to find the best hotel. It marked the specific details of the enemy's defensive positions. It even identified shops and buildings where the German soldiers bunked for the night, where they set up their machine gun nests and, and camping spots for snipers. Block by block, the Frenchman gave an accounting of the German units and the gun encampments throughout the city. For a captain who was already concerned about his mounting casualty list, receiving such information was an answer to prayer. Although the outcome of the war wouldn't depend on this one skirmish to him, this information meant that he wouldn't have to write as many letters home to parents and wives telling them that their loved ones had been cut down in battle. Before the soldiers moved out to take their objective, the captain gave each of them a chance to study the map. And wanting to make sure that his men read it carefully, he hurriedly gave them a test that covered the major landmarks and the enemy strongholds. And just before his platoon moved out, the officer graded the test, and with minor exceptions, every person aced it. They all passed with flying colors. It was because of that map the mission was a success, and his men captured the city with little loss to American lives. Now fast forward 30 years, an army researcher discovers this story, and he decides to conduct a study, to base one of his studies on it. The project began in France, where instead of a platoon of soldiers, he arranged for, arranged for a group of American tourists to help him with his research. He gave them hours to study the map. Men and women were allowed to come together, look at the same map that the soldiers had, and they were given the same tests. How do you think it went? What do you think the results were? It's not hard to guess. Most of them failed miserably. And the reason is obvious. The primary difference between these two groups was motivation. Knowing that their lives were on the line, the soldiers were highly motivated to learn every detail of the map. For the tourists... Being in a research study provided some motivation, but for most of them, they had nothing to lose other than maybe a little bit of pride for failing the test. Friends, our churches are full of too many tourists 
and not enough soldiers. It's no wonder the American church has become so strong politically, but so weak spiritually. We've forgotten that we are at war, and our battle is not against flesh and blood. And our king isn't the mayor, the governor, or the president, or even ourselves. And his throne isn't here on earth, but one day it will be. And our marching orders do not include the pursuit of happiness or the right to do whatever we want. Listen, soldier, the days are evil, and we don't have time for silly civilian entanglements. You need to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So stop trying to please people and win followers online. Instead, please the one who enlisted you, the one that you're going to have to answer to one day, your king, your sergeant, your leader. Please him and be in the real fight, the real one, the one that really matters. A good soldier is willing to follow orders and suffer hardships. That's number three. The real servants are siblings, sidekicks, and soldiers. Fourth, they are spiritual stewards. Stewards. Paul says, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger. Your messenger. Epaphroditus had been given a task. He was to provide Paul with an update concerning the church there in Philippi. But he was also entrusted with a large sum of money that the church had collected in order to help Paul while he was under house arrest. Look at Philippians 4.18. Philippians 4.18. This is the only other mention of Epaphroditus in the entire Bible. Philippians 4.18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. For two years, Paul had to pay rent without a means of making income. He wasn't allowed to have a job. He couldn't do things even while he was stuck there at home under house arrest, chained to a Praetorian guard. He was stuck. He was stuck. Prisoners were not provided for by the state, but relatives and family members were responsible for taking care of their needs. They had to send them money to help pay rent make sure they had food on the table, and so forth. The Philippians had been there for Paul. And Epaphroditus was a trustworthy emissary of their latest gift. He was a good steward. And you have to remember that for this church, this was a big deal. This was a huge deal. You'll remember that Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 that the Macedonians, they gave out of their what? Did they give out of their abundance, their wealth? No, they gave out of their poverty. Philippians were not rich. They weren't living large. They didn't have money in the bank. But they worked hard and they gave sacrificially to put together a large monetary gift. This meant something to them. And when the time came to appoint a faithful steward, they turned to the guy in the back who put his arm up, Epaphroditus. They turned to him. And that brings us to our last title. Not only are real servants spiritual siblings, sidekicks, soldiers, and stewards, finally, They are spiritual servants. Spiritual servants. Paul finishes the list by calling him a minister to my need. A minister is a servant. And it takes a special person to serve another servant. Jesus told the twelve, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. In God's economy, the lowest servant deserves the highest honor. Now this word minister, it's a unique word. It's not the word that typically shows up throughout the New Testament for minister. It's, it's very unique. In fact, it only shows up about five times here throughout the New Testament. And it refers specifically to the work of Old Testament priests and the sacrifices that they would make to the Lord. So Paul is comparing the Philippians' gift to a priestly sacrifice. And Epaphroditus is the priest. He was sent to deliver the gift and remain with Paul and serve him and minister to his needs like a priest would serve in the temple or in the tabernacle until the verdict came back, until the trial was done, and everyone knew for certain if Paul was going to make it out or alive. That's why Paul has to make it perfectly clear here 
that Epaphroditus' early arrival home is a good thing. He wants to make sure that no one accuses him. This close brother, fellow worker, good soldier, faithful steward, and priestly servant, he wants to make sure that nobody abandons this good man, this faithful man, who is worthy of honor of abandoning his post. So he provides all these titles of a true and trustworthy servant. But before we move on, let me draw your attention to one more thing here in verse 25. I know I should have probably made verse 25 an entire message, and for that, I apologize. But in verse 25, one more thing I just want you to notice here. Notice the number of times the word and shows up. And. Between my brother and fellow worker. Between fellow worker and fellow soldier. Between fellow soldier and your messenger. And between your messenger and minister to my need. Notice that there are no ors or buts here in this verse. Just a whole bunch of ands. Because according to Paul, it's all or nothing. Epaphroditus isn't somewhere down on the scale. He's not three out of five or four out of five. He's all five. And that's the way it should be. That's the way that we all should be. That's why he's a good example. Again, here's a faithful man in the church. And he is all five of these things. He's not one. He's not two. He's not three or four. He's all of them. All of them. And those in the background, the Epaphroditus of the church, they're not unnecessary. They're not superfluous to the work of the ministry. They are crucial. Crucial. Believe it or not, that's number one. And I still want to finish chapter two today, so we'll pick up the pace just a little bit here and skip over a few illustrations as we move through the other four. Number one, they're crucial. Number two, the best servants are compassionate compassionate. Look at verse 26. He says, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Epaphroditus, he's not worried about himself. He's not homesick. He's not upset because he almost died. He's worried about them because they're worried about him. These two words, longing and distressed, are two intense words used to describe a a deep emotion. The word longing appeared back in chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul said, For God is my witness how I yearn or I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In the word distressed, it shows up only two other times in the New Testament, both times referring to Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane before his betrayal. You see, Epaphroditus, he isn't just sad. He doesn't have ennui. Epaphroditus is a man who is torn up from the inside out. He's an emotional train wreck because he cares so deeply for the well-being of his home church. The best servants aren't selfish, cold, or counterfeit. They're compassionate. Compassionate. That's number two. Number three, the best servants are concerning. Concerning. Look at verses 27 and 28. He says, Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. There's a lot of anxiety here in these verses. A lot of concern being passed back and forth between godly people within the church. So what do we know about this poor man's illness? Well, not much. While we don't know what he had, the text does tell us a few things, though. We know that he got sick on on the way to Rome, and we know that whatever it was, he should have died from it. We know that he shouldn't have survived this sickness. It was that bad. It should have killed him. But we also know that he had it for a long time. The distance between Rome and Philippi is over 800 miles. And it took about six weeks or so to travel between the two cities. Word of his illness had gotten back to Philippi and then back to Rome, so he was probably sick for at least a few months. Either way, Paul was eager to send him back. Why? So everyone could just chill out. So they could stop worrying. Because there was so much anxiety surrounding this man's health, himself included. 
These verses draw out an interesting observation about guys like Epaphroditus. I want you to notice that they care deeply for others, and then others in turn care deeply for them. It's like their concern for others naturally creates concern in others. And this manifests itself in three different ways here in these verses. First of all, they provoke divinity. Divinity. He says, but God had mercy on him. In other words, God spared his life. The God of heaven and earth was concerned for Epaphroditus. And he wanted him to live. He pulled him back from the jaws of death. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Well, the answer to that question is obvious. Of course we are. Of course we're more valuable than the the animals that God provides for. Guys like Epaphroditus provoke that, that aspect of divinity, that cause for concern. Next, they provoke distress. They provoke distress. He says, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul believed in and championed the sovereignty of God, but he was also a man. He was also flesh and blood, full of emotions, and the loss of such a servant would have caused him sorrow upon sorrow. The Philippians worried about him. Paul worried about him. We don't know if Epaphroditus had family or or other friends back home, but those in the household of God were deeply concerned for this faithful man's health even to the point of distress. And then finally, they provoke delight. Delight. He says, I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. True servants are a joy to be around. They are marked by sad goodbyes and happy hellos. And beyond that, they enjoy each other's company. And quite frankly, that is a mark of genuine saving faith, of truly being saved. 1 John 3.14 tells us, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's strong. Look, I hope it concerns you when you hear that someone in the church isn't doing well. And I hope that you are enough like Epaphroditus to cause concern in others when you're not doing well. Because that's what we do as the church. We care and we love deeply. Number four, the best servants are commendable. Commendable. Look at verse 29. He says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. When you isolate the two verbs in this verse, it becomes clear that men like Epaphroditus deserve two responses from us. From the start, they deserve acceptance. Acceptance. Paul says, receive him in the Lord with all joy. We are to recognize and receive such men. And we're to do it with a, with a step in our, uh, in our feet. We, we are to do it with a smile on our faces, and we are to do it out of a sincere joy that bursts from the heart. We should accept them. They deserve our acceptance. Additionally, they deserve admiration. Paul adds, and honor such men. That means we are to hold them in high regard. This is a word that we looked at not too long ago in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a word that describes more than just lip service. It's more than just a a verbal external affirmation of of condolence or or acceptance. No, this is is an honoring. This is a reverence. This is a a feeling that swells up from within. This is a sincerity of heart that says, I am thankful and I am grateful for this person and I am going to honor them for their position. Or in this case, for their actions. We are to hold them in high regard, look up to them, honor them, treat them well. Why? Because at the very least, God does. In his commentary on this passage, James Montgomery Boyce has titled this section, 
the man whom God honors. In 1 Samuel 2.30, the Lord told Eli, those who honor me, I will honor. That's a promise. Such men are commendable. And those like Epaphroditus deserve our acceptance and admiration. They don't deserve our carelessness, our criticism, or our complaints. Unfortunately, there will always be those in the church who mistakenly believe that their job is to humble such men, when in fact they are commanded to honor them. But we have seen the best servants are crucial, compassionate, concerning, and commendable. Finally, the best servants are courageous. Courageous. Look at the last verse. He says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That phrase, risking his life, it's an interesting Greek word. And this is the only time it shows up in the New Testament. It literally means to gamble. So for those of you who have put that stake in the ground and claimed for years that gambling is not found in the Bible, I hate to break it to you. This is the one time it shows up, at least as its own Greek word. Gambling is certainly in the Bible. And Epaphroditus was a gambler. That's what he's saying here. It's possible that Paul is maybe even having a little bit of fun here with his, with his name. Could be a little bit of a wordplay. Because remember, Epaphroditus means loved by Aphrodite. And she was the Greek goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, and passion. But guess what? She was also the goddess of gambling. In fact, the Greeks were known to shout out this man's name. Epaphroditus, for the love of Aphrodite. They would shout out that word, Epaphroditus, as they cast the dice in hope of winning her favor. So Epaphroditus gambled with his life for the work of Christ. He took the risk when he made the long journey. He took the risk when he joined up with Paul. After all, in Rome, they would often execute those closest to the condemned just to tie up loose ends and make sure that there weren't any future complications from family members and friends. And so this was not a good time to link up with the Apostle Paul and become his assistant. Because you didn't know what kind of a verdict was going to come down from the emperor. And if Paul goes, you might go with him. So Epaphroditus is taking a risk in all that he's doing here to serve the apostle. Here was a man so selfless, so concerned with the welfare of others, and so godly, he saw his mission to serve Paul as an opportunity to serve Christ. And he risked his life to do it. If only the church had more men and, and women, like the ones that are provided for us here in Philippians 2. And these examples that we have, John MacArthur writes, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus were three very different individuals. Paul, the bold, fearless leader. Timothy, his quiet, devoted assistant. Epaphroditus, a diligent, behind-the-scenes worker. Yet all three manifested the most important characteristic of a godly leader. A life worth imitating. These are the examples. They are the Holy Spirit-inspired illustrations of what it looks like to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I hope that you don't forget about Epaphroditus or only remember him as the sick guy who gave folks back home a scare. He's so much more than that. Let me encourage you to do all that you can to become like this, to become like such a man, and to honor those men who are already there. After all, the best servants are crucial. They are important. We need them. They are necessary. They are compassionate. They are empathetic. They care for others. The hurts of others hurt them. They are concerning. They stir up concern because their concern for others has 
placed a concern in others. They are commendable. They are worthy of honor, worthy of recognition, worthy of our respect. And they are courageous. They don't let anything hold them back from working for the gospel of Christ. I pray that we would all be like Epaphroditus. Let's turn to the word and turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for this grace, for this mercy that you have shown upon us. We don't deserve this gospel, this glorious gospel that changes everything, that brings us into the divine family, that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son to die in the place of sinners. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who might not be saved or might be on the fence or not sure, Lord, if they have been stirred or awakened at all today, I pray that your spirit would soften their hearts. I pray that they would swallow their pride and in humility they would come to you because your son said that all who come to him will only come to him if the father first draws them but that all who do come he will never cast out. God, I pray that you would work in hearts that we would be humble people because Lord, we know that nobody struts into the kingdom of heaven. So I pray that for anyone here who might not be saved, that they would humble themselves, that they would deny themselves, that they would pick up their cross and follow you. And I pray for the rest of us, Lord, that we would also humble ourselves before God and man. Because just as no one can be saved without humility, none of us can grow in grace without it either. God, we know that you exalt the humble. We also know that you lower the haughty, that you humble the proud. God, I pray that we would be people who would find ourselves exalted on that final day, that our ministries will not be burned up in the fire as hay, straw, and strubble. Lord, that that we would have something to show for the time that we spent here on earth. God, work in this church, work in our hearts. I pray that we would all humbly come before you and accept the gifts that you have given, that you would work in us and that we would work those things out as we have seen here in the, in the last several months, almost a year now, in Philippians chapter 2. God, thank you. Thank you for this tremendous book. Thank you for men like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. I pray that we would look to them not as some far-off, unobtainable goal, but that we would see them as role models to emulate, to imitate, and to follow after. As they have followed Christ, may we follow them And may others look to us as examples of grace. Lord, we love you. We thank you again for this wonderful work that you have started, knowing that you will see it through to the day of completion. In your holy and precious name, amen.